Okay, so I'm going to talk about when is religion new, when it is no longer new in the case of ISKCON. The first area where religion might be new is in new context, when um, Srila Prabhupada first called for Westerners, and I'm going to use that term, um, in New York City in a de- to become in a devotional relationship with Krishna. Many felt anxious about the radical lifestyle changes that some young people were undertaking at the time. This initial growth of ISKCON was intimately connected to the countercultural movements of the late 1960s and 70s. There was an explosion of interest in Indian spirituality during this period with many following gurus, either of Indian origin or Westerners inspired by Indian spirituality. But ISKCON was fairly unique during this period and continues to be unique in the way it invites all, irrespective of race or national origin, to devote themselves to Krishna in a form of religious practice that is recognizably and traditionally Indian. So in one respect, ISKCON's newness in a variety of contexts is precisely the way it invites new populations to participate in a traditionally Indian form of worship. The term new religious movements was introduced by the academic community in an attempt to introduce some empirical observation to the moral panic of small religious movements that achieved heightened concern, especially after the 1978 Jonestown massacre. At this point in time, new religious movements was for many groups a preferable description than cult. And this academic intervention, to some extent, did help shift the discussion. However, ISKCON has often shied away from embracing the idea of being a new movement, and rightly so, as we've seen today, that in some respects it can definitely be understood as a revival within a centuries-old belief and practice of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And there have been other senses in which the word new might also be useful in understanding and celebrating ISKCON and its accomplishments over the past 50 years. After 50 years, ISKCON is no longer new to the British public. But because of its missionary focus, ISKCON continues to be new in many areas of the world today and faces significant challenges. Since the mid-1990s, ISKCON has seen growth in many countries of the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, countries which still find any idea of religion itself a bit new, and especially a foreign religion like Hinduism. A second sense of being new comes from a charismatic founder to new leadership. And Srila Prabhupada was an amazing and influential and charismatic man. As we've heard so much today, he's made his journey to New York City at the age of 69 and in the last 12 years of his life established a successful publishing house which popularized the Bhagavad Gita and gave it to the English-speaking world and established over 100 temples amongst many other achievements. One of the reasons sociologists and religious studies scholars like looking at new religious movements is due to Max Weber's influential theories of authority. Weber theorized that authority, the legitimate control over a population, typically originated in one of three sources, charisma, bureaucratic legalistic structures, or tradition. A lot of scholarly attention is focused on what happens after the death of a charismatic leader. And for this focus, ISKCON has been a fascinating case study for scholars. Srila Prabhupada made great efforts to set up a bureaucratic and legalistic structure to ensure the survival of ISKCON after his death, establishing the Governing Body Commission, the GBC, in 1970, and authorizing 11 initiating gurus. The majority of the original initiating gurus, however, did not live up to Prabhupada's high expectations of them, with three resigning in the 1980s and another three being expelled by the GBC. Disagreements after Prabhupada's death led to a number of challenges and schisms, after his death, some devotees aligned themselves to other established gurus in the wider Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition, while other erstwhile gurus within ISKCON took their authority and small numbers of followers outside of the main ISKCON structure, creating new schismatic groups. Disagreement about Prabhupada's intentions regarding the nature and roles of the original 11 initiating gurus also created discussion and disagreement. 
There is continuing discussion on this within ISKCON, but the issue has also inspired some inspired the separate ISKCON revival movement, who argue that ISKCON's leadership has deviated too far from Prabhupada's original vision to be legitimate. Interestingly, ISKCON has also been able to appeal to the greater traditional authority of Gaudiya Vaishnavism in Indian culture more generally, appealing to a growing base of support within India and the South Asian community in the diaspora, and this provides an authority for its evolving presentation of Krishna consciousness after Prabhupada's death. So from the perspective of a religious studies scholar, there's nothing surprising about the various disagreements, reform movements, counter-reform movements, and schisms that occurred after the death of Prabhupada. What is, most remarkable, what is most remarkable, perhaps, is that almost every scenario predicted after the death of a charismatic leader has occurred within ISKCON, and the main movement as a whole has continued to grow and gain in respectability worldwide. So another important movement in ISKCON in the last 50 years has been from the first, the second, and subsequent generations. So sociological understandings of new religious movements um, has moved to a definition that a new movement might be identified by all members being converts, or first genera generation members. And this would be an accurate description of those who formed the original base of ISKCON under Prabhupada's leadership in America and Europe. As has been the case with many religions that have primarily a membership consisting of converts, the arrival of children to a group creates unforeseen practical challenges. There are often unrealistic expectations that this, that this first generation of children will be uniquely pure and purely devoted to the cause of their parents. ISKCON has continued to grow up considerably in regards to how it deals with multiple generations of devotees, gradually moving from strongly encouraging young members to focus on full-time devotional work in its early years to the embracing of householder roles and outside employment for ISKCON-associated devotees. Between 1971 and 1981, there were 24 ashram-linked boarding schools for ISKCON children, called Garukulas, in 18 countries worldwide, caring for approximately 700 children. That's a lot to deal with straight away. Um, there's some evidence that complaints of abuse, including the sexual abuse of children, surfaced in the 70s, but were ignored by the GBC until the 1980s, when a few extreme cases were covered in the media. By 1986, the majority of Gurukulas were closed, but it was only in 1990 when open discussions about child abuse began within the ISKCON community, and the GBC issued resolutions deal, dealing with child protection policies. Um, in 1988, an Office of Child Protection was established to investigate and adjudicate any allegations of past abuse, and many of the children, okay, past abuse. So many of the children affected complained that the institutional response was too little too late. They argued that the financial payouts made prior to and in response to a lawsuit filed in 2000 were largely designed to improve ISKCON's image. And some of the children see the continued presence of those whom they accuse of perpetrating the acts of abuse within ISKCON leadership as a sign of lack of commitment to justice. But from an outsider's perspective, the problems that ISKCON faced with regards to the treatment of children in the Garukulas is not remarkable. In recent years, there's been coverage to the institutional cover-ups involving the mistreatment of children in all the mainstream religions, as well as in many other minority religions and secular institutions. Social attitudes and awareness of this problem have changed dramatically in the last 50 years. So although those affected emphasize the initial period of denial, compared to many other groups, ISKCON has been ahead of the wave in the manner in which it has eventually acknowledged the abuse and in the establishment of safeguarding structures. The institutional response has also been remarkable in its mature approach in dealing with critics. As early as 1998, it engaged with the American academic Burke Rockford to make an independent assessment of the Garukula abuse, and Rockford published his analysis within the ISKCON Communications Journal. And ISKCON continues to engage seriously with critics both within and outside the movement on this issue and other issues. 
So through the experience gained from very difficult episodes in its history, ISKCON is now much better at enabling children born into the movement to engage with devotion to Krishna, as well as the formal organization, in a variety of ways and intensities. In learning how to deal with successive generations of children, serious abuse by members, and engaging with external academic critics, ISKCON has truly matured and is no longer a new movement. <coughs> and the lessons learned in raising the first generation of children can now be transferred to new settings in the global context where there's again a primary convert population. So new initiatives. The path of ISKCON's growth over the past 50 years has been at times rocky and it has been impossible to keep everyone happy all the time. However, compared to other groups which gained significant popularity during the countercultural period in the 60s and 70s, ISKCON has been remarkably successful at reflection and reform, at engaging with critics, second-generation members, and the general public in many different countries. And its experience gives it a unique ability to promote successful new initiatives and continue its global expansion. Its global experience at engaging new converts from different cultures with the traditional form of Gaudiya Vaishnavism <laughs> has enabled its members to be uniquely effective translators of Hinduism to new cultures and contexts. Because of this global experience, educational materials produced by ISKCON are often much more accessible and effective introductions to Hinduism for foreign cultures than many of the narratives produced by the Indian diaspora, which have less experience of cross-translational translation issues. New ISKCON initiatives in supporting scholarship and art of Indian culture, both within and beyond the confines of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, are exciting and promise to do much to promote the public face of Hinduism in this country and many others. In the past 50 years, been, there's been a fascinating journey for those who have been part of ISKCON and those who have watched it. <coughs> it's been fascinating for observers of religious, cultural, of religious and cultural change to study and attempt to understand the movement. And there's much to celebrate within ISKCON's survival and growth over the past 50 years. A history which includes significant self-reflection, engagement with critics and adaptions to changing circumstances. Although in some ways ISKCON never was new, in other ways it will always be new, as it seeks to make devotion to Krishna accessible to new audiences, new cultures, and constantly changing times. Um, I'm going to ask each member of the panel to reflect upon their first encounter with ISKCON. Um, what were your impressions and what challenge did you, challenges did you see facing the movement at that time? How have these challenges changed or how has they become resolved over time, and what do you see the most significant challenges facing ISKCON for the future? My first encounter with ISKCON was in the early 1990s. Um, I was thinking about doing a religious studies degree. I was in Nottingham and I met a devotee and presented me with this, which is why I've been carrying it around, because I've still got it. Um, and we had an interesting conversation about Krishna and Kali, and he was surprised that I knew so much about Hinduism already, and that was, my, that was kind of my first encounter. It wasn't particularly theoretically informed, but I've thought back on it for today because I too am 50 in a few weeks' time. <laughs> so it's prompted a little self-reflection. Am I old? Am I new? <laughs> um, and, but I think that's quite an important question. And I kind of, I'm, by training, I'm a philosopher, but I also study new religious movements. And I'm always occupied by the question, what is a new religion? So, is 50 old? And I think it often depends what kind of class of objects we compare it with. And so often new religions are compared with the established world religions, you know, where they'll trace 2,000, 3,000 years of history. And then they do seem young and new. 
there are, we've heard a lot of the debates today already, so I think a lot of the things I want to say have been prefaced already. Um, so sometimes new is classed as post-World War II. There are other words in, or, you know, in circulation, recent, contemporary. I think philosophically none of these quite work because new is a vague term. It's kind of what we, we call, a, it invokes kind of Sorites paradox where you can't actually define what, vague, you know, what new means. You might think a week old is very new, but maybe a thousand years is old, but it's everything in between where it gets incredibly ambiguous. And it's often, you need kind of, maybe you need legal definitions sometimes, where academics have to come together and try and make a decision, or we just argue about it in articles and journals. Um, I would echo what's been said already though. I think, in a sense, ISKCON is always new because it's reinventing itself for new challenges. And this has been said today in lots of by all the speakers. ISKCON has been confronting new challenges. It's been adapting. I think all religions are inevitably adaptive unless they atrophy and disappear. I will make a kind of philosophical point though about identity of objects and identity of organisations. There's often a desire to establish a fixed continuity, which often invokes an essence. You know, as soon as you start talking about continuity, you're looking for an essence. Is it a continuity of literature, of practice, of certain beliefs? I think this is quite problematic in terms of metaphysics because sometimes things can retain an identity without having a single essence. It's something that Derek Parfit, an analytic philosopher, talks about connectiveness. You know, it might just require sufficient connections in the past for it to, and they may not go all the way back. So actually I think identity can be maintained through change and I, I see this gone surviving. It's going to have to adapt to various challenges, the environmental crisis, I mentioned transgender earlier. I mean, I think ISKCON is going to do that. I think ISKCON is very adaptive. It's, I would say it's flourishing. Um, but I have worries as an academic of new religions and a philosopher with regard to looking for a distinct, es you know, an essence of continuity. This presents problems. I don't think ISKCON needs to do that. I spend most of my time working with pagan religions where there's often a conversation about them being the Ur religion of humanity, you know, claims of ancient heritage, animism, shamanism. But they, can't, they know they can't trace a continuity of practice, but they still say that they are trying to reconstruct the past, you know, reconnect with the past. But they know they haven't got the continuity, of, you know, continuity there already, but they, are still, they, they would still claim they are connecting with the past in different ways. But as to what the challenges are, they're going to be the challenges that are going to face all of us. Environmental crisis, I'm an environmental philosopher predominantly, so environmental crises, social challenges. And I think ISKCON is flourishing and it's going to adapt. But I'm not going to say how, that's RISCON to, uh, to work through, I think. So that's all I wanted to say. Well, I already gave, um, gave away some, <coughs> excuse me, some of my early experiences um, with the Hare Krishna movement this morning. Um, but... Perhaps one that I could recount is the time that... Uh, so I was doing research on the Hare Krishna movement for a book and I was invited over to spend some time with the devotees in Boston. So this must have been about 1984 or something like that. Well, I had spent some time with the devotees in, in the UK and uh, I kind of felt I knew them fairly well and 
and understood how to, to behave in a, in a temple context. So the time I, I arrive in Boston, I get to the Boston Temple, and I believe me, after 24 hours, I was in deep shock because that, uh, that really was a puritanical regime. So, uh, of course, as you know, the devotees get up early and they begin their, their spiritual day early, and you, I think you probably know a little about what happens in those early hours. Um, but I think I probably spent most of my time uh, not making notes, as you might think, as a researcher I would be doing, but making garlands. <laughs> it was eye-opening, and actually receiving my garland today just really reminded me of... Uh, it reminded me of the labours in, in serving Krishna. I mean, there is actually a silent beauty in making garlands, so although I'm making a joke of it, Believe me, there is a wonderful piece in those kind of activities. But I, the other reason I mention it is because Dermot reminded us of the complex gender, um, I won't say relations, it's, I don't know what the right word is, the gender, um, the gender, the way gender operates in Iskon. Because in that temple in Boston, all uh, the... the, the the devotees, mostly young men, young brahmacharis, they, they absolutely served Krishna as gopis. They, it was a, a completely new to me, this it's quite extraordinary playing with gender that was taking place in the Boston temple at that time. They looked like female uh, devotees, admittedly, yes, they were dressed in their orange uh, kurtas and so on, but uh, they absolutely, um, they loved Krishna as the gopis would have loved Krishna. It was a complete eye-opener for me, a very, very, very <coughs> stringent regime, one in which I, I learnt how to, uh, in a couple of days, to be a true, um, humble servant of Krishna in that short period of time and really had to put aside any plans that I had to do any interviews or anything like that. I went out on the Boston streets. Yeah, absolutely. I had to do everything. It was so that was so more than my first encounters with Iskon in in Britain. I remember that encounter in Boston. Um, but I think it's instructive remembering that because that most certainly was the cult of Chaitanya at work. And this is a kind of positive way in, we can use, in which we can use this term cult, I think. You know, that, that there is still a cultishness about some aspects of, um, some aspects of ISKCON, and by which I mean that idea of a shared spiritual practice that, that binds people together. Um, I mean, that's what we use... What, that's the value of the word cult. It's been made into a pejorative term, but of course, within the academic community, there is still a use for the term cult. So this cult of Chaitanya, which is absolutely at the heart of the movement, uh, I think that's a, that's a, it remains an interesting way for us to think about the Hare Krishna movement. And yes, it's continuity, but also it's change. Because this idea, we, we think about... Chaitanya, and we think about those wonderful pictures of uh, Chaitanya. You know, you always get that image, and that's why both Rasa Mandala and I both show pictures of the devotees out 
uh, doing kirtan in the streets, whether it was in Boston or in, in London. But of course, we remember actually that there was a discontinuity, there was a break between the time of Chaitanya or certainly the time of the Goswamis and the 19th century in which that really, that really largely died out. And if it hadn't been for uh, Bhaktivinoda Thakur and so on and other people in the 19th century, well, there might not have been an ISKCON actually. So even the historical picture that was painted so beautifully by Dermot as he went through those different historical periods and showed those connections, that had its breaks and, and discontinuities as well. So, so yes, this is a story of not only about continuity, but about repeated change. And I think the thing that I would just like to end with is a question about establishment rather than new or old. So it's about, uh, you know, so when we talk about mainstreaming of religions, the mainstream religions, um, we're often thinking about the ones which have become respectable and all the rest of it. And of course, there is a sense in which uh, ISKCON has become quite respectable these days. Um, and that's important, really, for ensuring, you know, for it's part of its success story. It's part of what enables it to have um, to take the place that it has, to be influential in the ways that it has. But of course, as you yourself said, Gauri, you know, there's a real problem with becoming part of the establishment. You know, so uh, on the one hand, there's, an, there are, there's a value in it, but also there's, there's something about being on the margins, which allows you to innovate and to challenge and so on. And I, what I hope for ISKCON is that somehow or other it can keep that fine line between establishing itself, but also somehow still continuing to be sufficiently the cult of Chaitanya <laughs> that enables it to go on, you know, innovating and bringing in newness and and as well as keeping on those traditions fantastic thank you kim uh, i'd like to address the issue of the term new religious movement we've moved on from cults to new religious movements and maybe we do need to move on from new religious movements because and i'm going to echo what paul was saying earlier what on earth is new and new was such a subjective term. And I was recently in a discussion where uh, we were suggesting that maybe we should use the term contemporary religions when discussing religions in, in contemporary society per se, so be it ISKCON or Christianity. Um, in, in my personal experience, I'm, I'm doing a PhD on Scientology, which is a new religious movement, but is obviously a very different movement to ISKCON, to say the least. And um, they are at a similar point now where they are just over 50 years old. And they, and they are at, at the point where schisms are starting to appear. So what is the new thing about Scientology? Is it the schisms or is it the Church of Scientology itself? And this does present a problem, especially if you consider that as uh, scholars of religious studies, we want to move forward from the world religions paradigm. There's uh, lots of discussions at the moment about leaving world religions behind. I remember when I was in school, I had awful textbook that told me that there were only six religions in the world, which <laughs> um, is absolutely dreadful. But um, so we are leaving that behind. And I can't help but feel that the term new religious movement is creating a barrier between minority movements and what I would call the more mainstream movements. So in that sense, I would say ISKCON is a contemporary religion rather than a new religious movement. 
things. I think the thing about uh, New Religious Movement is it's useful in certain contexts and in contrast to certain other words. And it's a bit like the word cult, like Kim was using. Cult is a very accurate description for worship of a particular deity um, at particular times. And so I, th I think that it's, it's all about word choice in particular contexts, and maybe the study of religions needs to move on a bit more and, and think of a new paradigm. Yeah, but another, another term is alternative religion, which brought back the notion of mainstreaming mm -hmm. and the actual disvalue for mainstreaming as well, which I'm just kind of thinking, I'm going through all these lists of alternatives to new experiments, but we see alternative quite a lot, but I really liked what you said about the disvalue of mainstreaming, so I think actually being alternative, being distinct from the six or the seven or whatever it may be is quite important sometimes. I had one other just comment really, which was just on the notion of second generation, looking after the second generation or the third generation. Um, it's often noted that the death of the charismatic leader or the leader, the founder, is often one of these major breakpoints. But I, I, I still think that actually the second generation, you know, the second generation is probably more defining how you treat children within new religions. And also more recently, how you treat the aging population. Um, it's becoming a real issue for all these movements founded in the 60s. Mm -hmm.